Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Hope you're doing good. I'm, I'm feeling good. Yesterday, um, we had a Love HB, our second annual Love HB. Quick shout out to all of you that were there. Made some time to serve your neighbors alongside some other churches in this city that call on the name of Jesus. What a, what a beautiful thing to see churches coming together, Christians coming together from across the churches. And, and I want to say what we're working for through Serve City is something that really, to this sort of expression and degree, has, has never happened in the history of the city of Huntington Beach. But this is something that God is genuinely stirring in this generation that I believe is very unique, but very much in line with his intent from the very beginning and going to the cross in his high priestly prayer of John 17 for the unity amongst believers, setting aside our petty differences, any competitiveness. Uh, you know, a beautiful expression of that is also going to be at our elder meeting this afternoon. We're going to have a church planner who's going to be planting here in Huntington Beach meeting with us as an elder board. And we're going to see, we're going to pray into how can branches support this church plant in our own city of Huntington Beach. This is something that we've done multiple times because this is something that is close to Christ's heart that we're going to be about. And so I'm just so excited about what God's doing, and I hope that you guys aren't missing it. I hope that you aren't, you know, missing the fact that God is still doing new things, that He's still at work, that there's still revolutionary things going on, and that you don't just sit back as an observer and hear about it secondhand, but that you actually step in and participate, that you, that you do something about it, that you join in with the opportunities that are put before you so that you don't hear at the end of your life, oh, hey, this is all the things I was doing all around you your whole life. Like, no, these are the opportunities for us to join in with what God is doing. You know, I hear people talk about, you know, the Jesus revolution of the 1970s and 60s and, you know, what, what was different back then? Well, God wasn't any different. The Holy Spirit wasn't any different. The truth of God wasn't any different. Who was different? We were different. The believers were different. And sure, there's a lot of momentum that picked up. But who got the momentum started? Who was rolling that ball down the hill? Like, I want to be a part of that group. I don't want to say, oh, it's going to be someone else. Let's wait for them. Let it be us. Lord, use us. You know, it's the same mentality we go into, like, even just hearing God's Word. You know, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 8. You can turn there if you want to. You know, we're in this series, and, you know, so much of our attitude is, you know, going to define what the product is on the other side of this, because God says, I'm going to do my part. You know, we're, we're leaning on the Word of God. The Word of God is living and active. We believe the Holy Spirit is working through God's Word. He promises to do that. Like, He's just going to do that every single time we gather. It branches. There's no glitz. There's no glamour. We're, we're here in the Word of God every single week. We're working through books. God says, I'm going to speak. He'll speak through me. He'll speak in spite of me because we're in God's Word. But how are we going to receive it? I, I said last week, you don't even have to understand it all. Like if God's in His Word if by the Holy Spirit, this is living and active. He's going to find a way to communicate to you what He wants you to know wherever you're at and your developmental journey, but it's like, am I going to lean back? Am I going to wait to hear something? Or am I active? Am I engaged in this process? Just like, am I engaged with what God is doing all around me in this community? So here's an opportunity this morning. We're going to step into God's Word. Hopefully you're going to put your life before God, but, you know, the night of worship, the bonfire, these service opportunities, common ground surf camp, the book study, all these things are things where you can join with community. You can join with what God is up to. He's doing something this morning, though. 
In this book of Hebrews, he's been communicating so much to us. A lot of the topic is on what's better, looking for what's superior, spiritually looking for what's better. That was the initial audience that received this letter. They were, they were hungry for something better spiritually. And I know we can relate to that in Orange County, that search for something better. That kind of characterizes Orange County where we live. There's a large collection of people that are hungry for something better. And it doesn't have to, we always blame Orange County. We always say, oh, Orange County's this, Orange County's that. It's not the geography that does anything. It's the people that are living in Orange County in this collection and kind of their attitudes and dynamics that constitute why Orange County's called this or that. Because we are a group of people, we're hungry for the better. We want the better job with the better pay. We want the better car. We want the better house. We want the better body, right? We want the, we want the better group of friends. We want to see, is there a better church? You know, statistics will tell us that a lot of people are looking for the better spouse in Orange County when you look at how much divorce there is in this area. Man, this was a group of people who could relate to that hunger for something better. And they were Jews who'd left behind their traditions. They'd left behind the sacrifices and the old tabernacle system and the priesthood because they'd received the message of Jesus, which was way, way better. But when they received Jesus, at some point along the way, they said, oh man, maybe is there something better back where we came from? And maybe we've actually missed out and, and we've got to go back the other direction. And so the author's been saying, the writer's been saying so many different ways, no, 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 no. You found the better thing last week. It's like, why go back to these earthly Levitical priests when you have received the promised high priest from heaven in this higher order that even the Levitical priests knew was of a higher order, one who was to come in the order of Melchizedek. Now in chapter 8, the writer's going to continue that line of logic. He says, as part of that higher order, Jesus serves in a greater heavenly ministry. In a, in a higher sanctuary than what's on earth. And he mediates and he guarantees and he brings about a covenant, an agreement, a spiritual relationship between us and God that's based on far superior, better promises. Now again, we may not be, and we may be, I've met a few ethnic Jews, we may or may not be, but Knowing about the better promises of this better covenant, of this better ministry in this higher sanctuary, this is all what we've inherited as Christians. So to go through this this morning, it's valuable for us, just like it was for them in convincing them, hey, don't go back, you're on the right path. Okay, let's read together. Hebrews chapter 8. Hopefully you are struck as I am with the superior and better and best nature of this relationship we've received with God through Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. He's, of course, referring to Jesus. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one, that is Jesus, also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs 
as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. That's the old way. That's the old covenant. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Let's pause there this morning. You know, Hebrews chapter 8, it's pretty straightforward. Jesus as our high priest is better than the earthly priest because his ministry is greater. The place where he serves in heaven is greater. And the agreement and spiritual relationship that he fosters between us and God is greater because it's built on greater promises. You know, that's the order in which he argues his case. But let's start at the top with Jesus' greater ministry as our high priest. You know, as I mentioned last week, the job of a priest is to get people to God. You know, it's like a tech support person. What's their job? They, they work on computers. You bring in your computer. If it's faulty, it's got some issues. It's got some viruses. They're supposed to remove the viruses. They reformat the hard drive. They give you back your computer in a working condition. The job of a priest, the job of a pastor, the job of a spiritual leader, it's the same thing, right, with human souls. You know, a human soul comes in with these viruses, these issues, right? Let's clean those out. Let's reformat the hard drive. Let's get you to God. Let's get you in alignment with God. But in the old covenant, with the old regulations and sacrifices, the writer of Hebrews keeps saying, man, they didn't do their job adequately enough. The best you had was this one earthly high priest who could enter into the throne room of God in his presence just one time a year. And before he would do so, he'd have to make amends for himself because of all his flaws and shortcomings. And then he'd go in there and make a sacrifice for the flaws and shortcomings of the people. And then he'd have to leave God's presence until the next year when he would do it again and again and again. And then he would die and someone would have to take his place and it would happen again and again and again. It's like the viruses on the computer kept multiplying faster than tech support could remove them. You know, the way you can think about this is, you know, the priest's job is to fill this bucket of righteousness, this wholeness of relationship with God. But, but the water is leaking out of the bucket. That, that righteousness, that wholeness is leaking out of the bucket faster than they can fill it. That's the curse of sin. That's the curse of our disobedience that we can't ever keep up. And there's an anxiety inherent in this constant cycle of decay that's communicated here. And it was communicated in the curse in the book of Genesis. And it would have very physical ramifications, like, like evidence of this decay and this fact that we can't keep up. 
it's even in my landscaping where on Mondays I cut the grass, I trim back all the trees, I trim all the palms, and then by the next week it's all overgrown again. And by the sweat of my brow, I break my back, and no matter what I do, there's more. And I'm exhausted just thinking about what I've got waiting for me tomorrow. Some of you can say amen to that if you don't have synthetic grass you sold out. But it's evidenced in, you know, like your, your muscle fibers. Like your muscles at some point are going to deteriorate faster than you can build them. No matter how much you even juice yourself up. And there's all kinds of juices available today. But at some point, and you guys all look great. You're defying age. I'm not trying to say anything about you. But I'm saying at some point, no matter what supplements you take, there's going to be a point at which your muscles deteriorate faster than you can build them. Your skin is going to sag faster than an expert in Orange County can pull it back and keep it straight. It's just going to get to that point because there's a point in our lives when our cells will die at a more rapid pace than they can replenish themselves. And that is when we face physical death. Now that is all the result of the curse of sin. And it's also reflected spiritually in the fact that we have all these desires and temptations and weaknesses that keep us scrambling to constantly get ourselves right before God. So the old way of the earthly priest could not achieve perfection because they could not get people to God. They could not solve those problems. And in fact, they themselves, those earthly priests, could not get to God or even stay in God's presence. They were subject to sin and sin's curse like us. But by contrast, again, this is the theme you're going to hear. Jesus has a better ministry because he is the one promised from the beginning to enter God's presence permanently. Who has, as verse 1 says, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. What qualified him? We talked about this in chapter 7. If you didn't hear the message, go back and listen to it. You know, he lives forever. God had promised in the Old Testament, I'm going to appoint a high priest, a heavenly high priest, who's going to serve in that role forever. It's Jesus. What qualified him is he was sinless, perfect. He lived an incorruptible life. He defeated the curse, human decay and sin. And after saying, it is finished on the cross, he sat down. You know, it's this posture of rest. It's like some of you after Love HB yesterday, you worked in the sun. It was supposed to be a really cool day. It was nice like this for about 30 minutes. Then the sun came down, right, beating down on you. You got done through that day of work. What did you do at the end of your day? You kicked up your feet. You sat down in a posture of rest. So Jesus sits forever perpetually in God's presence at rest, having completed his divine commission. Now, as part of his role... As heavenly high priest, verse 3 reminds us that he must offer sacrifice. I mean, that's the role of a priest, the earthly priest. They continually offered sacrifices. But his sacrifices, uh, uh, his sacrifice rather, of, much, of which much more is going to be said in chapter 9. When we're at the park, please don't miss it because, oh, it's a beautiful message on the sacrifice of Christ. It was set apart from the earthly priests and their continual earthly offerings because his sacrifice was himself upon the cross, which I mentioned just prior. He was that all-sufficient once and for all offering to cover our spiritual debts forever. That's what he ushered in, a much better sacrifice. Now, when I talk about 
debts. I'm reminded of a conversation I had this last week. There was a, a block party going on, a celebration going on in our neighborhood. And someone told us that our neighbor did what no human being has ever done in Orange County history. They paid off their house this last week. They made the final payment on their mortgage. Oh, my gosh, guys. I, I, mean, I can never imagine myself doing that. I think possibly if I live another 140 years, I will make the final payment on my mortgage. I can't even imagine what that must feel like to be debt-free. But, but, I mean, think about your own life. Your own life and your wrongdoing before God and, and your failings before God. It's like there is this mortgage on you spiritually. There is this debt, indebtedness that we have before our Creator. And it's compounding interest all the time. And the way that our lives work and our human weakness, we don't have enough resources. We don't have enough righteousness to even make the interest payment, much less get to the principal, the original debt, the original wrongdoing in the first place. And so it's constantly accruing on us. I don't know if any of you have ever been crushed buy credit card debt unmanageably at some point. You're like, man, I'm making payments every month, and yet the balance just keeps going up. It's because it's unmanageable, the amount of debt that you have, and such is our life. We're unable to make the principal payment on our wrongdoing. We're unable to keep up with the compounding effect of sin in our lives, and yet Jesus comes along with a better sacrifice, a once and for all, all-sufficient sacrifice. He says, I'm going to pay the interest I'm going to pay the principal, and I'm going to make you entirely spiritually debt-free. You are going to owe nothing forevermore. That's the better sacrifice of Jesus for you and for me. But the writer of Hebrews isn't done. He says that better sacrifice took place in a better location, the heavenly tabernacle. Now, this is a massive point in defense of these Jewish Christians not going backward. You see, oh man, he's just building the gates. He's like, why would you go back? Why would you go back? The deficiencies, the fact that they can't serve, the fact that they can't make amends, the fact that you've got this offering already given to you. But he's like, look, it was done in even, even a higher location in, in heaven itself. I mean, if, if the best there was is the earthly tabernacle and the earthly system with the earthly priests and their, and their traditions. It, like if, if the Old Testament was all you had, then sure, Employ those practices because those are from God. But man, if you have Jesus, a perfect priest, perpetually in God's presence, who's offered that all-sufficient sacrifice in the perfect heavenly sanctuary, what are you doing? Why are you thinking that there's something better out there than what you have already received? You see, the writer reminds us in verse 5 that Moses, when he received the law which included the instructions for building the earthly house of worship, that is the tabernacle, he was told to build it according to the pattern and copy that he was given. You know, it's sort of like if I was given, uh, you know, some paints, and I was given a ceiling, and uh, a picture of the Sistine Chapel, you know, and the painting, the legendary painting that's done on the ceiling, and I went to go paint it. Guys, it's going to be pretty poor results. Only Margaret... No, it's going to be really poor results because she's already laughing at me, thinking about what would come of me. I've got the pattern. I've got the copy. You know, just give me some paints and give me the ceiling, and I'll make, you know, that thing look just no way. You know, I don't have that capacity whatsoever, but that's, that's what happens spiritually 
when you take these divine and perfect things and you run it through these imperfect, flawed human beings. I mean, history has borne this out. Like, the spiritual game of telephone that's happened through the centuries and millennia, where, where, you know, if you guys don't understand the game of telephone, it's like you get all these people lined up at a party or whatever, and the first person whispers a little phrase in the person's ear, and then they, you know, can't say it again. You, you already heard it, right? Everything you heard. And then they're supposed to take whatever they heard, which is usually flawed, and whisper it in the ear of the next person. And you go around the whole room, and then it's like really different than when you started. Everyone goes, ha, ha, it's so different. Because it represents the flaws that happen. One flaw at the beginning gets transferred on and multiplied on and on and on and on. And that's the spiritual game of telephone that's happened through human history. You can see this. You start with pure, holy source material like Christ. And then all the cults and offshoots come after that. It's the spiritual game of telephone. You get the Jehovah's Witnesses. You get Mormons. You get Islam. All that came after. They had the source material in all its purity but then you run it through a few more human beings and you end up with something all the more flawed, right? You know, th- that's the same thing he's communicating happened to a certain degree in the Jewish religion and practice. Because here you have God giving Moses this copy and pattern, and then it's going to be administrated by flawed human priests. Jesus, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God. When you believe in him... You're dealing straight from yourself to the source. And when you relate to him and he relates to you, you're coming straight from the source back to you. There's none of this game of telephone. There's not all these other you know, lines of communication that are flawed that are going to obscure what God desires of us. He's filling us with his very presence. It's this direct line to the heavenly, perfect sanctuary. Now, this is already a better deal, guys. This is already a better agreement a better commitment that we experience between us and God than the Jews ever had received. And it's better also because it's based on better promises. Okay, he's continuing this case. Better sanctuary, better sacrifice, better ministry, all built on better promises in verse 6. Because guys, if nothing was wrong with the law of Moses, if nothing was wrong with the way that things were going with the earthly tabernacle and those earthly sacrifices then why would God say? That's the argument of the writer. Why would he say not in the New Testament? Not through somebody who followed Jesus. Why would he say through the Jews, through a prophet in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. There's going to be a new agreement. There's going to be new and better promises. Why would he say that? If there wasn't something that was going to replace what already was. It's like when I moved here to Orange County, I was first coming here to check out different schools, and I didn't know anyone yet, but through relationship, a whole series of events, different story, different time, got to know my wife, uh, who I didn't know at that time, weren't dating or anything. She picked me up at the airport, first person I met at LAX in Orange County. By that night, I believe there was an agreement we were dating. You know, like, like that, was, that was it. We made this covenant. We made this commitment. Like, there's an exclusivity between us. But if that was the ultimate, if that was it, if I had arrived in that dating relationship, then why did I go back to her at some point and say, do you want to be married? Do you want to get engaged? Why didn't I fall prey to the arrested development of Southern California that just thinks, oh, dating is all there is. This is the best it's ever going to be. No, I knew 
there was a greater commitment. There was a greater promise. So God was saying the same thing to his people. There was a better thing planned. The old covenant, it worked to fulfill its design to point people toward their need for Jesus, this heavenly high priest. But it did not work to fully get people to God, right? So because something better was planned, God said, look, I'm going to institute this answer that is superior, that fulfills my intent from the very beginning. You know, the regulations of the old covenant were very simple. God said, follow me and I will be your God and I will bless you. And here's all the means by which you can do that in the sanctuary and the priests and the sacrifice traditions. But the people did not live up to it. That's what I've been saying. They sinned and they continued to sin. And the result was what you see in the Old Testament. The nation gets destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. And though by the time of Jesus, the people are back in the Holy Land, it's occupied by the Romans and they're being manipulated by the Roman government. Jeremiah spoke about all this in their period of destruction by the voice of God. It's quoted here in verse 9 from the book of Jeremiah. You did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned away. And now I will make a new covenant, the better one that we have in Jesus. Now, what are the better promises? And this is what I'm going to end with in our time of reflection. What are those better promises of this better covenant or spiritual commitment and agreement that God has established with us? They're promised there in verses 10, 11, and 12. They constitute the constitute the, the nature of our relationship, the better promises. Well, the first is this. He promises, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I will put my thoughts in their minds and I will write my laws on their hearts. That's, that's a new thing God was going to do in this new relationship that's been forged through Jesus Christ. What that means is this new covenant comes with a change of heart and mind and not body. Let me clarify this in a moment because you're going, why is he bringing up the body? Well, let's say, uh, you know, uh, Christians, we're going to differentiate ourselves. Uh, giving our faith to Jesus, we're going to do something physical to represent that now we're Christians. And I say, okay, guys, uh, we're all going to cut our hair a certain way, and that's going to distinguish us as Christians. Everyone's going to know we believe in Jesus because we've got the same haircut. Now, I know some of you are deficient in the area of hair, so we're just going to have to pick like a shaved head or something so that it just equalizes it. This is now our haircut. We're going to cut our hair, and now you guys all know we're, we're distinguished as a people, and it represents the fact that we're different than everybody else. And it's just on our bodies. You know, this is something that was very key to the Jews. They also cut something. It wasn't their hair. Okay? It, it was circumcision. And this was that physical distinguishing characteristic in the old promise it was supposed to set them apart as spiritually different from the rest of the world. But given human nature and the problem of sin, what did they start doing? They started just focusing on the external as the evidence of who they were in God rather than on the internal. They said, all right, we're going to circumcise everybody. Now we're the people of God. And they stopped living as distinguished. That can happen to us. That can be a temptation even for Christians to externalize our relationship with God. This is what it means to be a Christian. You show up at church on Sunday, you know, and you listen to this music. You don't listen to that music. And uh, you vote this certain way. And that's what makes you a Christian. God said, I am making a new covenant. 
a new agreement and relationship with a new group of people, and it's based on a better promise. It's going to change the hearts and minds of people, not just their physical bodies. I'm going to take my laws and I'm going to etch them on my people's hearts. And I'm going to take the thoughts that I think, the way that I see the world, and I'm going to put it in the minds of my people. They are going to be like me. They're not going to look a certain way. They're going to be like me as people. They're going to be transformed. And so that's the work that God is doing through Jesus. He's saying, you know, you're going to feel about sinners and those who are far from God the way Jesus felt about sinners. You know, he loved and served and gave his life for those who were enemies of the cross. And so we too, when we give our lives and we're in this new agreement and commitment, we say, I am going to love sinners. I am going to serve those far from God. I'm going to lay down my life for my enemies. Because now our thoughts are aligned with God's thoughts. That's what was going to happen in this new agreement. It wasn't like you could say, oh, no, 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 I'm going to have the vindictiveness and the malice and the anger that characterizes society right now. No. Because when you have the mind of God, you understand that anger and malice and vindictiveness and, and, and revenge, those are sin. So you don't operate the way that you would operate and the way everyone else operates because there's a new agreement, a new covenant that you've entered into, and you don't make excuses for sin any longer. You say, I don't want that because I want the thoughts of God. I want the heart of God. You know, so I'm looking at the church. We're Christians, right, in America. Where's the Christ in our Christianity? The attitudes, the thoughts, the feelings. He wanted us to be distinguished when it came to money. You know, everybody wants more and so they never have enough in Orange County, but you're going to be different. I'm going to write on your mind, on your heart, how I feel about money. And then you're going to walk around feeling about money the same way that I feel about money. And you're going to utilize this temporary resource for an eternal impact. You're going to quit thinking that like, oh, the platform and the influence and the people with platform and influence, those are the people that you want to aspire to. You're going to start thinking that service actually is greatness and you're going to love it the same way I love it. I love what someone said to me at first service. They were serving yesterday. I say, thank you for serving yesterday. They say, I love it. I love to do menial labor to honor other people. I go, dad, that's the mind. That's the laws of Christ etched on your heart where we quit saying, oh, you know, my act of service is when I serve my family and my friends. That's my cross I bear. Jesus said, that's the rest of the world. Everybody already does that. Do you love your enemies? And when you want to love your enemies, that's the work I'm doing. It's a better promise. He says, I'm going to make that happen by giving you my Holy Spirit. It's going to be a different group of people than the group in the past because he promises to write his law on our hearts, not just on our bodies. In the New Covenant, he says, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's in verse 10. The New Covenant, that means it's unconditional. It's not conditional. The Old Covenant... He says, I'll be your God if you will be my people. If, 
It was conditional. And when you're not going to act like my people, I'm not going to honor you as my people. I turned away from you because you first turned away from me. How comforting is this promise in the new covenant? The new covenant is based on an unconditional relationship, not a conditional relationship. He's going to give the means to make up for our deficiencies. You know, already I said, here's the things he wants to write on your thoughts. Here's the things he wants to etch on your hearts. And you say, I don't live up to that. Well, thank God that he's made this agreement unconditional because of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus. He says, what you lack in this relationship, I'm going to make up for in an eternal way so that I can stay your God and so you can stay my people. It's like a marriage without the possibility of divorce. Now, of course, that was God's intent, but we go through life and we have relationships with human beings, and now you realize, given the statistics, divorce is a possibility in the world, right? But with God, he's saying, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is a better promise built on the righteousness and sufficiency of Christ not based on our weakness as it was in the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant of Jesus, God promises, they won't teach each other, for they will all know me. Now, is this my letter of resignation right now as a preacher and teacher in this community? I'm sure you're wondering, what is the deal with this? Because it says in the New Testament that Jesus gave these gifts of the Holy Spirit that people would teach and we build each other up and encourage each other. What is being said in this promise of the new covenant? Well, it means that the new covenant is based on belief, not based on birth. You know, before they were considered Jews, God's people in the old covenant through birth and circumcision. You're born a Jew, you're circumcised, and you're now a part of God's people. But not all the people, just because they were born Jew and circumcised, actually knew God actually had any sort of relationship with God. It's sort of like here in America. Some people think, I'm born in America, so I'm a Christian. Because America is a Christian nation, so I've been born here, so I'm automatically a Christian. My parents are Christian, so I'm a Christian. And my spouse is a Christian, so I'm a Christian. And it has nothing to do with what they actually believe. That is absolutely not the case. Participation in the new covenant comes from you and I personally knowing Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit through faith in Him. Being part of the new covenant is based on the foundation of knowing God. So everyone that's a part of the new covenant necessarily knows God and doesn't need to be told about him. If you don't know God, if you don't know Jesus, then you're not part of the new covenant community because everybody that's in knows him. It's a greater promise than the mixed community of the old covenant. And finally, most importantly, God promises in the new covenant of Jesus I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sins no more. The new covenant comes with the promise of total forgiveness, not perpetual guilt. The new covenant comes with the promise of total forgiveness, not perpetual guilt. There will no longer be this system of constantly atoning for deficiencies through the perpetual earthly sacrifices. God would make a way to gift us the grace we could never earn in our own weakness and sin. It's not that our sin and weakness wouldn't exist. It's that the interest and the principle on the debt would be paid and the bill would be thrown out. He says, I will remember your sins no longer. It'll be forgotten. So no longer is there that habit 
and life of perpetual guilt. It's complete and total and finished grace and forgiveness. When the writer of Hebrews makes this case to these Jewish Christians, who's thinking about going back? By the end of this thing, it's like the greater ministry in the greater location, the greater sacrifice, the greater promises. What are you thinking that you're going to go get that's better back where you came from? This is better in every conceivable way. And so he says in verse 13, the old is the old. It's deficient and it's passing away and you're now in the new. Do you know what you have? Do you know the, what the value of what you're a part of? And I guess that's what I want to finish with this morning. That's what I was so struck with is, do we understand the value and the riches of what we are a part of in this new relationship, this new covenant that God has made with us through Jesus? Do we see it? You know, I said at the very outset, Orange County has so much, it can make us feel like we always have so little. It has so much all around us that we can always be made to feel like we have so little. But we have so much. We're exceedingly rich. You know, you think about these early Christians. I don't know what was going on with them. I mean, I can kind of put together some pieces, but apparently they're thinking that they don't really have all that much, that they're thinking about going back to the old way of doing things. They don't know. They didn't know what they had when they had it. And he's going, do you know what you have? How rich you are? How good this is? It's the same thing for us today. Do we know what we have? Do we know how good it is? I kind of feel like we're just, you know, living there and then somebody finds, oh, you have a giant oil reserve under your house. You're filthy rich. And we just kind of sit there and we're like, no, yeah, just leave it in the ground. No, this could be life-changing. This could be life-altering. Do you, know, you know what you have on your property? It's yours. Just pull it out of the ground. And we're like, nah, we'll just leave it there. And I get maybe in that analogy, it's Orange County, so you're trying to save the oceans or whatever. So you want to leave it there. It's a diamond mine. You're sitting on a diamond mine. It's there. It's yours. And you just don't mind it like these promises, the relationship. We have it. Are we mining it? Are we accessing what we have and knowing its worth and its value. There's this weird thing about human beings and our flaws that a lot of times we have to lose something before we understand its value. Have you seen that habit? I gotta lose it before I know what I had. Like, like I have to go through a life-altering accident and lose mobility for me to understand, oh wow, the gift, the grace, the amazing miracle of being able to move. And you had it the whole time, but you didn't know what it was worth. Can't tell you how many times I'm, you know, sitting with somebody who's on their way to divorce and they suddenly realize how important all those decisions were and the value of this relationship that's slipping through their fingers as they're losing it. It took them all the way till the very end to understand the value of what they had. I mean, do you have to have a near-death experience? If someone has a near-death experience, oh my gosh, now I'm going to change everything about my life because I realize, like, life is so fleeting. Death wasn't a secret, guys. You don't have to almost experience it to know it's going to happen. We can already be aware of the value of what we have if we would but see it and let it sink in. And that's what I've been praying for and yearning for in this message is to convey to you and that the Holy Spirit would convey to you the best. You have the best. 
You have the ultimate. The promises are yours, gifted through grace. This eternal ministry, this access to the heavenly sanctuary, the no guilt, the total forgiveness, the interest payment and the principle, the whole thing forgotten and erased. I want to receive that. I want to receive that this morning. And I want to pray that we would receive that gift this morning. Would you, would you join me in prayer? This alone, this alone this morning, Lord, prayer. No game of telephone. No spiritual game of telephone. Everybody else is just, oh, they heard a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and they're going to pass it on as truth to us mixed in with all their flaws. Heavenly Father, we can speak to you. We can go straight to the heavenly sanctuary through Jesus Christ. He's our mediator, the Son of God. The fact that we, human beings, your created ones, you are the creator of heaven and earth, and you invite us to speak to you you promised that you can hear my voice and that you're mindful of me, that you would call me your child, that you would fill me with your spirit. In the old covenant, nobody in the world had access to your presence. No other nation, no other religion, just one. And even there, one person once a year entering in and then quickly leaving, Lord, you said, you're going to fill up our deficiencies and our weakness and you're going to forgive us in such a way that you would fill us with your very presence. We know what we have. Do we know what we have? The promises of this agreement that nothing, nothing else can promise that. There's no other spiritual leader. There's no other holy book. There's no other philosophy for living that can give us and gift us what you have already given us and we have already received through faith. Lord, your Holy Spirit, giving us your very thoughts, etching on our hearts your very laws, what you care about, how you would have us live, what you would have us think. We're not going to be a product of the pattern of the world anymore. We're not going to be a product of empty and dead religion. We're going to be children of the Most High God, looking to you, our Father, being shaped by you, our Father, walking in the way, an example of Christ, wanting that, wanting what you want. That's the work that you're doing in this new agreement. It's unconditional. We're safe. We're secure because we didn't earn it, and we can't lose it based on us. You achieved it, and you secured it, and you promised it forevermore. We're your people. You're our God. That's the way it's going to be. Total forgiveness. Lord, if you need to remind a brother or sister in here this morning that's living in guilt, perpetual guilt, insufficiency, Lord, would you remind them of your total forgiveness, the interest, the principle, the debt is paid, the bill is thrown out if they confess their sins to you, Jesus. You are faithful and righteous and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. What better agreement is there? What better promise is there? We're rich. We have it all. 
we truly have all. Thank you, Lord. Impress upon all of us in this time of worship. Impress upon all of us in this time of prayer. You're not just better, you're the best. We have the best. We have the best. Would we know it? Would we see it? Would we feel it? Would we not have to lose it to understand it? Would we know it now? Would we know it now and enjoy it now? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.